Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today is Andres Sibbles, a researcher and professor of rangeland ecology at New Mexico State University. This may be slightly embarrassing for him, but by way of introduction, I'm going to read from the text of a recent award because the award summary is quite good, and then I'll let him talk. Dr. Sibbles was honored this year, 2020, with the Society for Range Management's Outstanding Achievement Award. I'm quoting now. During his tenure of 16 years at New Mexico State University, Dr. Sibbles has established research exploring the application of ecological theory to improve rangeland-based livestock production systems, livestock ecosystem interactions, use of telemetry, geographic information system mapping, and remote sensing tools to understand grazing patterns of livestock on large rangeland landscapes at various spatial and temporal scales to inform adaptive grazing management decisions on areas lands. Another focus of his research involves studying the role of livestock in supporting livelihoods of smallholder agropastoralists in West Africa and New Mexico. He's built an impressive institution within his laboratory and sets an example for productivity, instruction, and acknowledgement. Andres is well known for developing unique research tools and models for preserving rangelands and investigating livestock breeds that may be better adapted to harsh environments, many methodologies of which have been adopted for use by agencies and producers. Andres, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Tip. I um after that introduction, it's going to be hard not to disappoint your audience, but thank you so much. <laughs> well, first, uh, we don't know each other that well, and I'm not certain that I'm pronouncing your name accurately. I'm saying Andres Sibbles. And that's perfect. That's, that's fine. I am an I am, uh, immigrant from Argentina, and, and that's uh, the, the, the reason for the uh, unusual name. I know one other person from Argentina personally, and she says Buenos Aires in a way that sounds legitimate. Am I close? That is very close. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, looking at your resume, you went back to Argentina for a while after getting your PhD at Colorado State. Uh, what was your pathway to being a rangelands and technology researcher at New Mexico State? Yes, I actually started out as a county extension a specialist working with sheep ranchers in Patagonia in southern Argentina, uh, then had the opportunity to come to Colorado State and then uh, return to Patagonia to work um, again with sheep ranchers, but as a as a as a research scientist, uh, eventually had the opportunity to uh, come to the University of Arizona to do a postdoc studying foraging behavior of cattle. And while at um, Arizona State, I applied for a permanent position at New Mexico State in the Department of Animal and Range Sciences. And that's where I've been for the last 17 years or so. Hmm. Uh, personally, why were you interested in rangelands and livestock? My undergraduate degree was in animal science, and 
as soon as I got out of college, I got the opportunity to go work as a an apprentice on a very large sheep ranch in Patagonia and understood pretty quickly that how one managed the rangeland had all of the uh, uh, impact on uh, lamb and wool production, and that unless you understood uh, something about the ecology of rangelands, it was very difficult to run a successful livestock enterprise in these sorts of environments. Yeah, there's a quote from Baxter Black that I think I've mentioned once before in the podcast, but for some reason it stuck with me. He said one time that there's nothing that comes out of the end of a balling gun or a hypodermic needle that can compensate for subpar animal husbandry. And I don't know whether he meant it this way, but you know, certainly we would include in that 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 adapting animals to land and managing land in a way that's healthy is absolutely tied to good animal husbandry. I couldn't agree more. Well, I wanted to come back to some of what you said at the Society for Range Management uh, Symposium you spoke at back in February in Denver. Uh, In the introduction to that symposium, uh, the program said that we have witnessed significant technological transitions in rangeland science and animals, specifically with advances in wireless and sensor technologies and access to big data. Uh, In the symposium, you were one of a few people answering the question, how can we direct change that is inevitable in ways that are desirable? And through these transitions, uh, which can sometimes be, these are my words, disruptive economically or socially, uh, how can we sustain the flow of rangeland products to consumers and improve environmental conditions to maintain or increase the well-being of those who live, work, and recreate on rangelands? Uh, So I wanted to come back and give you an opportunity to talk uh, just a bit about some of what you've done on on those topics. Yes, thank you. One of the uh, possible avenues to to do what you just described that we are uh, investigating is to see whether by using sensor technology and um, uh, adequate uh, uh, network systems, we can um, lower the costs of uh, ranching enterprises. So in a lot of the West and in the Southwest where I live and work, the profits of uh, typical cow-calf operations uh, typically on average about 2% and and, uh, and so many years it's less than that, some years it's more than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the profits are very slim and so the financial sustainability of a lot of these enterprises depends on um, basically cutting uh, costs wherever, wherever possible And one of the things we're exploring is whether the use of technologies that are uh, now commonplace in other animal agriculture systems could be adapted to rangeland livestock production systems in any way to help um, 
help make them more sustainable. Yeah, I would just in thinking through some of the different ways that we use technology, we can use various kinds of uh, technical solutions to document animal movements or animal attributes, um, maybe in some cases to manipulate animal movements or to detect landscape features or changes that help us manage animals. Uh, what are what are some angles on that that, that you have spent time on? So we've uh, um, invested quite a bit of time in the last uh, 15 years to study these patterns by using uh, store on board telemetry. So basically using systems that record animal position or animal movement and then downloading these data and mapping them and understanding what's happening after the fact. Uh, what we are uh, engaged in right now is trying to set up systems where we can monitor animal movement in close to real time. And we can basically mine the data that is, that's provided by GPS or movement sensors to through a network to the cloud on uh, daily timescales to be able to have uh, criteria to go in and do corrective management um, in close to real time, I would say. And so the, the technological leap here is to... Uh, Acquire data in close to real time and use what we have, what we and many others have learned through the years to process the data that is produced by these sensors and come up with diagnostics that would allow a manager to uh, uh, basically intervene and uh, adjust the management in real time. So you know, we're talking of um, the, the need to go uh, look for a cow or two that uh, maybe uh, have uh, health problems, um, animals that may have left the pasture, uh, time to move animals from one pasture to the next. Those, those sorts of things um, could be addressed, and we, we are actually – uh, testing this just north of Las Cruces here with uh, real-time uh, animal sensors that allow us to to see location, but also uh, allow us to monitor movement intensity and these sorts of things. What is the cost of that right now, and what are some ways that that helps save money? The... The cost is uh, the, the the cost of the system. We, we've, we're setting up. We're, we're just sort of uh, setting up the our 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 first system. But but approximately, uh, we we estimate about um, seventy to eighty dollars uh, per uh, monitored animal is what. What our cost is approximately right now. We these these numbers are not not final, and the we we don't have a final number for the savings because of course that depends on on many different things. But the but 
what we think is that in the long run, the, the savings in terms of um, the miles a rancher might drive every day to check animals and or the savings in terms of being able to intervene in time to uh, avoid uh, the loss of a cow um, should uh, more than pay off the the uh, or yeah pay the the cost of uh, instrumenting animals and and uh, and uh, and collecting and monitoring uh, their movement in real time. The the system the system we're using is uh, not only monitoring animals, we're setting up using the same uh, uh, real-time technology. Um, we are setting up sensors in water drinkers and setting up rain gauges that are also able to, um, to transmit data to the cloud in real time. And so we are hoping that these three streams of data uh, can be, uh, we're working on uh, bringing them together in what we call a rancher dashboard that would allow, um, uh, would basically make management uh, somewhat more more efficient in the use of the use of time and the use of, of uh, in this case, fuel vehicles, that sort of thing. And while you were talking, I was reminded of an application that uh, that was mentioned in the Rangelands article that you guys just published um, this month, I guess it was. The, the article that had Michael Millward as the lead author, uh, GPS-based evalu- GPS evaluation of factors commonly used to adjust cattle stalking rates on extensive and mountainous rangelands. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of fine-tuning um, expectations or understanding of what kind of slopes cattle would use and that that has the potential depending on um, how existing stalking rates have been developed has the potential for expanding uh, the number of AUMs that are considered available on private land, possibly even federal land. Uh, The example that that you guys gave had a 24% increase and available AUMs based on actual livestock movements compared to using the rules of thumb uh, that um, were developed by Holacek. Yes. Do you see that as having a wider application in other places besides the research ranch? Uh, that would be one possible application, of course. Um, being able to – and this all depends on, uh, of course – how many animals in the herd we could afford to to monitor, and but mm-hmm. being able to um, have real time data is one way of uh, that would allow us to uh, map uh, uh, rangeland use and grazing pressure in real time as well, and then make stocking rate decisions. Um, so, you know, so, sort of similar to uh, what you described uh, from well, what we de- described in this in this uh, Rangelands article, hmm. making those decisions on the fly uh, on an annual basis instead of having something that's set for thirty years. 
Well, yes, adjusting. You know, um, the idea that what what we found in most places is that the rule of thumb worked uh, fairly well, but that there were some exceptions. And in the places where we did see exceptions, um, the difference in some cases was was not trivial. So, so, so that might be an application. The way we are thinking of our system is more to inform day-to-day management associated with uh, issues of, of on, the animal si- on the animal mm-hmm. side of animal health. It could be distribution as well, but, but of identifying um, animals that may be behaving abnormally because uh, they are, they are uh, not well, they're ill, or uh, during, uh, for instance, uh, calving, uh, being able to monitor animals and monitor behavior of cows that are uh, that are fixing to calve is probably uh, f- pr- pretty valuable, especially if it's younger cows and one uh, is uh, is uh, 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 sort of needing to go out and, and and assist in any way. So, so there are other applications more that we, we are. Uh, basically thinking about more so than the annual uh, uh, adjustment of, of stocking rates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ones that you mentioned in the paper is uh, the possibility of use mapping, either replacing or complementing uh, utilization monitoring that's commonly required for both state and federal permits. Uh, you know, to what extent... Are there sensor technologies available now, either through documenting livestock location and how much time they were in a given area, or a, a totally different approach of you know some kind of a remotely sensed solution to measuring residual compared to standing biomass before grazing? Is there anything like that out there? Yeah. So so the so the the animal sensor technology that we're using. Um, uh, could help, but it probably makes more sense to use uh, uh, remote sensing solutions that could be um, uh, that could be uh, uh, UAV based, so drone based mm. uh, uh, solutions or high resolution um, uh, images. I was uh, talking to somebody this afternoon that was. Uh, uh, telling me about the the new constellation of uh, of uh, micro satellites that uh, one of Elon Musk's uh, companies is planning to put out there that can can um, uh, acquire images with a seventy centimeter resolution and uh, and will uh, basically cover an area three times a day or something like that. So so there are for that sort of applications, uh, remote sensing tools that are being developed that probably make make more sense than than uh, deploying uh, animal wearable sensors to answer that sort of questions. What other sensor technologies, uh, if if any, are are should be of interest to ranchers or land managers in a rangeland context? Um, one of the one of we, we are as I mentioned earlier using three um, three types of sensors because we 
we, when we started out on this project, we, we spoke to some ranchers on our advisory board and asked them, what, what are the kind of your, your question, but what, what are the basic things that you would like to know? And so we were told we would like to know where our animals are. So when we go out, uh, check them, we can go on the dashboard, uh, pull up the map, see where they are, and drive a ride straight to them. That was the first thing we were, we were told. The mm-hmm. second thing we were told is, especially for southwestern ranches, we would like to know if we have problems with the drinker. So if we have one of our water sources that um, uh, the, the floater is not working or has gone dry, we would like to be able to detect that right away. Mm-hmm. And the, th- the third thing they told us was, we asked them, would you... Would you rather a uh, remote sensing solution to estimate uh, forage in different pastures on your ranch, or or is or or would you rather know whether uh, you got a decent rainfall uh, at a pasture that's far away from headquarters? And and we were told, uh, give me the rainfall. I would I would like to know that, and I can plan on that. And so, based based on this that we heard from from these ranchers, is that we deployed the the kinds of sensors that I just mentioned to you. Which of those are feasible right now? Well, the they're all feasible. Basically, the the technology needed the technology needed to do the the real time gathering of data is what is a little bit less. Uh, mm common in the United States and in the Western United States. Um, we are uh, using the LoRaWAN system, so the long-range wide area network system that is used um, quite a bit in the, uh, for, the, for Internet of Things applications, so to connect sensors uh, placed on, on different, different gadgets. And the one of the advantages of the system is that it can transmit small data packets and typically our uh, animal sensor data or water sensor data or a rainfall uh, a, a, a rain gauge will transmit that sort of data, but it can do that over uh, fairly long distances. So, so one gateway, one rate gateway with a decent radio antenna can cover a radius of up to 10, 10 kilometers. And so, so this is a system we're testing. And that the, the, the major initial complexity is to have the network in place to be able to uh, move the data from the sensors to the cloud and from the cloud to a computer. Um, and and we are that is what we are basically learning about right now. In, in Europe, I would say they are uh, a little bit more advanced than we are. And uh, in using these sorts of tools, uh, even in sort of more remote pastoral areas. And so we are uh, collaborating with uh, colleagues from the UK as well to, to learn from their experiences and uh, hopefully try not to make the same mistakes. You have a... A new large AFRI CAP grant uh, titled Novel Strategies to Increase Sustainability of Beef Production Systems in the Western U.S. Uh, can you tell me about that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So the 
practice, uh, uh, a lot of what I described with uh, what we are calling precision technologies that we are using is being funded by USDA NIFA within this CAP grant. But the grant involves other things as well. We are looking at uh, the use of heritage cattle genetics. We're working with uh, Mexican Criollo cattle as a way of increasing, especially for us here in the Southwest, increasing uh, uh, the ability of uh, ranches and ranchers to adapt to um, uh, a drier and hotter climate. So that, that is a, another a big objective of this CAP grant. And the third is um, more of a, a modeling objective that is looking at um, alternative beef supply chains uh, in the Western United States. So, so as you know, um, we, uh, most of the cow-calf, of course, happens on rangeland. And I'm thinking again in our southwestern rangelands. And then the calves will go to be uh, backgrounded and finished uh, outside of our region, basically, to the, to the Texas Panhandle, to the Ogallala region. And, of course, then we'll, we'll eventually, eventually go to market. That is sort of the main, mainstream, uh, our, our mainstream uh, supply chain. And, uh, and so... This modeling exercise is trying to determine, well, how beef connects these two regions on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, what are other options uh, to supply beef to the market besides this sort of mainstream channel? So those are the three main areas of our CAP grant. And, and the one other thing I'll just add is that as a CAP grant, you know, uh, 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 CAP stands for Coordinated Agriculture Project. That means that it's in fully integrated with extension and education. So we are working with extension specialists, and we are also working with K through 12 education NGOs. And so uh, we are trying to uh, maximize the flow of uh, feedback from today's producers and consumers to the researchers and back, and from tomorrow's uh, consumers and producers in the, that is currently in the K-12 system to the researchers and back sort of thing. Something you mentioned a while back on sensors made me think about cow weight. And uh, you know most animal scientists know that if you ask a rancher what his cows weigh, he'll tell you, 1200 pounds and then you put them on a scale and they're 1350 there's some advantages of having sensors but that that also made me think about this cattle breed issue uh dr derek bailey told me that i should ask you about criollo cattle and see if i get you to stop talking after a couple of hours <laughs> i'm interested in 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 what that research looks like it in particular it seems like in the desert southwest uh something like that would be a more profitable fit than a 1,300-pound Simmental or even an English cross that's significantly lighter than that. Uh, I think I saw the word somewhere, Raramuri Criollo. How do you pronounce that, and what are they? Yeah, so uh, 
Yep, that, that is uh, Raramuri criollo, and they are uh, a type, a biotype of criollo cattle from the Copper Canyon in Chihuahua, Mexico. And um, we, uh, the USDARS uh, Jornada Experimental Range, introduced those and started the research on this type of animals, oh, probably 15, 16 years ago. And the the reasoning was and still is that these are um, cattle that, of course, were brought to the Americas by the by the conquistadors, the, the Spanish conquistadors. These were animals originally from um, from Spain, from southern Spain, and uh, and with influence of uh, African uh, boss Taurus. Uh, breeds as well. Anyhow, they spread across the Americas from, from North America all the way down to, to Patagonia. And, um, and this specific biotype that we are working with called Raramuri is named after the, the, the Tarahumara people of the Copper Canyon that are the, the, the people that have raised these animals uh, for several hundred of years, hundreds of years with Kind of minimum uh, husbandry, so min- minimum inputs, and so these these animals are high, highly adapted to to harsh environments. And there is probably, as probably Dr. Bailey mentioned, these are these are smaller cows, uh, probably weighing about 800 pounds. And uh, and the the one of the problems of trying to use them in a sort of a typical beef production system is that the calves at weaning are very light, and so so there is there is really very little market in in, in the beef sector for weaned criollo calves. So one of the things we're exploring in our calf project is something that people in northern Mexico have been doing for a long time, and that is uh, doing a kind of a terminal cross crossbreeding our criollo cows with an improved beef breed bull. And then getting calves that are that grow faster and reach reasonable weaning weights and can be sold at weaning. And so, so this is this is a one one kind of production model that the project sees as as well. We we want to basically see if it is viable or not. And so the idea is that we will. We will look at these crossbred calves from birth all the way through slaughter, so through from the ranch, ranch to rail, basically, and uh, and we'll compare those to uh, calves of improve, improved commercial commercial breeds that are being raised right along them in, in the same conditions, and so so that's that's kind of where we're at. The the reason we like this this model is because we think well, you would have a herd of uh, mother cows of Criollo mother cows um, that we know use the landscape very differently. So a lot of the work we've done with store on board sensors in the past uh, suggests that uh, the grazing distribution patterns and the way they behave is is quite different. It appears that their their diets are somewhat different to uh, commercial beef breeds, such as the ones you mentioned that were uh, bred and selected to do well in areas of France or. Or Great Britain, and uh, and then uh, 
and that you know they can they can do very well in the in the desert, obviously, but uh, with uh, higher levels of of inputs. And so, so we're trying to document all the economics of all of this as well, to be able to at the end of the day uh, evaluate what the trade offs are. And so you might might save on one side and might not gain as much on the other. So that that is one of the things we're trying to determine. And and you're you're right that I went on and on there. I'm sorry, Tip. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. Yeah, I would expect that the first question from a commercial rancher, you know, regarding using these animals for breeding stock is, you know, what is the are they still gonna hang a low choice carcass and do well in the feedlot. Uh, I'm aware of just anecdotally of a couple examples in Washington state uh, where somebody has Coriandi cows that are being bred to a low birth weight Angus bull. And those calves did pretty well and performed quite well in a feedlot and then on the rail. Um, how are the Criollos different from Coriandi's? Are the Coriandis also it's, Mexican cattle, but that came from Spain? That, that their origin is exactly the same, but they were selected for uh, for different purposes. So, a lot of the Corriente cattle that we that currently come from from Mexico and that are and that are more common in the in the lower areas in the more de- desert areas of Chihuahua uh, are cattle that were bred for. Uh, uh, sports cattle and so so okay. sports steers for for rodeo so so in though these are animals that were uh, obviously uh, selected for uh, small size and low weights mm-hmm. quick animals that could run the tarahumara uh, the the animals that they that they've raised for many years were selected to be double purpose dual purpose animals. So they mm. use them, they milk them, and they use them, the, the calves, of course, for for meat, for beef as well. So so they tend to be larger than the typical Corriente cattle. But the genetic origin is the same. And one, one important thing about the, the Criollo cattle in general, and I think this is true throughout the Americas, is that there's a huge amount of genetic variability. So you might uh, start off with a corriente herd, but you probably have enough genetic variability that through time you could end up with a herd that is more suited for for beef production. But the the logic here was that this uh, specific biotype, though very similar to the corriente, is somewhat bigger and would lend itself better to, to beef production. I've heard that some of the larger European breeds were developed as beasts of burden, which is sort of compatible with being a meat animal, as opposed to when you said dual purpose, I was thinking meat and uh, labor rather than meat and milk. Uh, but I suppose milk makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, oh, in in Mexico, were any of these cattle used as work animals? Yes, I I admitted I admitted to say that tip actually the. The, my understanding is that the Tarahumara people still today use some of these animals for draft, and so they will they will use them uh, for for for, uh, for for you know plowing a field and doing that sort of thing as, as well. The 
the one interesting thing that I'll just add here, and and this is, I haven't seen this in person, but but colleagues that have uh, were up there initially, and uh, and that formed this first initial herd, were telling me, and, and and that you see in the herd of animals that we work with over here, is that these were um, extremely tame animals. So, so typically, one sees a criollo cow with. Uh, intimidating horns and just wonders I wonder what it is to get one of these into a shoot and try to <laughs> try to work with it you know and um, they're they're amazingly amazingly easy to easy to work with and uh, so colleagues that that put together this initial herd and uh, purchased these animals uh, up in the Copper Canyon would tell us that uh, some of these cows were Treated as as almost pets, and would uh, would even try to walk into some of these people's homes. So they were around the home there that that milk them and so on and so forth. And so so anyhow, I don't know why I got off on this tangent tip, but but uh, but it has to do with being able to use to to milk an animal that needs to be, of course, fairly tame, and and use it for draft as well. Yeah, the origins of the cattle that we use in this country and others is not something that I've thought about very much. I've, I've read a bit about Bali cattle, uh, in, in the, you know, in Southeast Asia and on some of the islands around Indonesia. And they're supposedly descended from Bonteng cattle, which is a different genus than either Bo, you know, it's a different genus. It's not Bos Indicus or Bos Taurus. Uh, I think they call them Bibos or Bibos. Do you know anything about some of these other, uh, indigenous breeds of cattle. It seems like everything in the New World uh, came from somewhere across the Atlantic. Are there any? Yes. Is that the case? I, the, my very short answer to your question is that I know very little about this, and uh, and and. But but what I will say, and and of course. Uh, this takes me back to the criollo, but but in a minute I'll explain why this makes sense. And that is that one of the things we we think about some of these heritage heritage breeds is that they might have a because they use the landscape differently and because their diet selection patterns appear to be slightly different that they their impact on the landscape might be somewhat different. And so this takes me back. There's a, a study that was uh, published recently. Uh, in Germany, actually, using uh, highland cattle, uh, which uh, are, you know are not as different as the as the south uh, uh, southeast Asian uh, um, mm-hmm. kinds of cattle that you were talking about, but that mm-hmm. would be a type of heritage animal within the European uh, breed context, and um, and monitored uh, these animals, monitored their their uh, impact on uh, the composition of grasslands at dif- different places uh, uh, throughout Germany and, and consistently found differences between uh, pastures that were regularly uh, grazed by, uh, by highland cattle than, than the pastures grazed by, you know, improved commercial cattle. And the, and the, the common denominator in that case was um, increased uh, diversity in 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 the pastures that were 
were grazed by highland animals. And uh, we, we have never measured that with uh, the specific kind of the criollos or the specific kind of heritage cattle we're using over here. But, but that is something we are hoping to begin to document uh, with this uh, project and, uh, and have actually uh, set up a network of, of studies that we hope will go way beyond the, the CAP grant to try to, uh, try to figure out whether this is true of our Criollo cattle or not. Is there a place where people can go to learn more about your work if they're interested in learning more about some of these sensor technologies or heritage breeds? Yes, absolutely. The, the CAP project, we um, are currently conducting, has a website. And if you Google Sustainable Southwest Beef, uh, you should be able to... Um, uh, find the URL for our site, and there is um, information that is being added to this website uh, all the time. This is a, a large group of collaborators in New Mexico, California, Utah, South Dakota, uh, Texas, and uh, other places, um, and um, a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting stuff happening. So. That would be the best place to go. Okay. We will include that project website in the show notes for the episode when it releases. Uh, Dr. Sibbles, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tip. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.